0: Um, this morning's reading is from Genesis chapter 24, um, verses 1 to 33, and this can be found on page 17 of the Church Bibles. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the women may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send an angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camel also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, The man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on.
1: The second half of our reading is on page 18 and it starts from verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan and... If they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord, we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you, take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewellery of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he drank, and the men who were with him ate and drank. And they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, "'Send me away to my master.' Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Berleharoi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and her covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death.
2: Well, thank you all very much. Um, Please do keep that reading open, um, page 17 of our Bibles. That will hopefully help you. And I don't know if you noticed anything uh, different about reading, Um, perhaps the length Our longest passage yet in Genesis, it is a long one, 67 verses, count them, Uh, hence two readings, Uh, it might be the length, it might have been a kind of sense of, hang on, what's happened to Genesis? Like, why have we suddenly changed genre and we're now in some kind of Jane Austen novel or a romantic comedy, if modern things are more your taste? What's going on here? 67 verses about finding a wife for Isaac. What's going on here? Is it that Moses is just changing up his style for a week? Uh, You know, you sometimes get those TV series where it's just clear that the writers got bored one week and they want to have some fun, so they write a kind of standalone episode that's completely different to the norm. Um, So at the risk of revealing both my age and my geekiness, uh, when I was a teenager I sometimes watched Star Trek. Yeah, the shame. Uh, Which is normally a sci-fi show on a spaceship, but every so often they did like a cowboy and western week or a period drama week. They made up some fanciful reason for that. The holodeck was broken or they were time traveling or something. But it seemed like the costume designers just... Genesis has been... The writers. So is that what's going on in Genesis 24? Genesis has been a book about a lot of things and had more than one style, but not particularly this style. Genesis so far has been majestic. Genesis 1 and 2, God creating a cosmos by speaking as a home for humanity, majestic. Genesis has been tragic, Genesis chapter 3, when those creatures, given this amazing world, rejected our maker and ruined it all. It's been majestic, it's been tragic, it's been realistic since then. Uh, Genesis 4 to 11, how that, that rebellion kind of spreads out across all humanity, across all the nations, messing up the world. And it's been realistic since chapter 12 as well, which is when the camera zooms in on Abraham since chapter 12. It's been a kind of real life, real faith lives of Canaan, drama. All access cameras in the family of promise, this family of Abraham. So it's been majestic, it's been tragic, it's been realistic. The one thing it hasn't been is romantic. And then chapter 24 comes along. 67 verses hunting for a bride. For Isaac. So what's going on? Well, has Genesis gone sentimental? No, actually. See, this chapter is not primarily the love story of Isaac and Rebecca. We know that because they only meet two verses from the end. Do you notice that? They meet, they fall in love, they get married in two verses of the 67. So what is it about? Well, it's about the love story of God. It's about God's love life, not theirs or ours primarily. So let me pray for help, for God's help to see what's going on here. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have promised that your word is transformative, that when you speak to us in the Bible, it it can change us as we listen. And so we pray for ears and hearts open to listen and pray that you would change us and grow us more like the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. As I said, um, this doesn't read like a traditional romance, romance drama. Um, uh, only at the end do we actually get Mr. and Mrs. Wright meeting each other. Um, so what is going on? Kind of, What's at stake? Why is this given so much airtime in Genesis? Well, it's important to, to realize here that, as I said last week, we're in a kind of intermission in Genesis. We've had season one of the family of Abraham, Real Faith Lives of Canaan, season one, which is the original generation, Abraham, Sarah. But last week, Sarah died and was buried, uh, chapter 23. Next week, chapter 25, Abraham will die and be buried next to her. So we've got kind of death bracketing this chapter. And then after Abraham's death, we'll get into season two, Jacob, Esau, the next generation after that. So we're in a kind of intermission, and the intermission is is like sandwiched with death. And in the middle of the sandwich is this chapter, which is all about hope, and particularly hope for God's promises to continue, God's love to continue. I said last week, this whole intermission between the two seasons is, is kind of weighing up death versus God's promises. Which is stronger, death or God's promises? Which is more lasting, death or God's promises? Which is more certain, Death or God's promises. And last week we thought about Sarah herself. So when she's put in that grave in the land, is there any hope for her to get a home beyond the grave? We thought about her specifically. In this chapter, we're thinking about the next generation. So do those promises of God, those amazing promises of God, get buried in the cave of Mechbalah with Abraham and Sarah? That's the question. Does his love hit the brick wall of death and stop? Or does his covenant commitment carry on to the next generation? If you forget everything else I say, remember that. Does love God's covenant love continue on into the future generations? That's why I've been um, channeling Celine Dion from Titanic uh, in the outline. Is it an outline of where we're going on the back of the sheet? Uh, right at the back. Um, I've called the title of the sermon, Near, Far, Wherever You Are, His Love Will Go On. Uh, Not because I'm in a kind of romantic mood, honest, but because that actually really captures what we're saying in Genesis 24. Um, Near, far, wherever you are, even if you're the next generation, even if you're in a different country, God's covenant love goes on. That's the key issue. Why did that matter for the original listeners of Genesis, the original audience? Well, because they were 400 years after Abraham. And they were on the edge of the promised land, needing to trust that God was still with them as they took on what seemed like an impossible mission to go into that land that God had promised to Abraham. Is he still with us? So much later? With Abraham long dead and buried, forgotten by everyone else? They needed to know it. What about for us today? Edinburgh is far from where this all started, both in time and place as churches close across Scotland in many places, as Christianity is marginalized in UK public debate, in a way it hasn't been for hundreds of years, especially north of the border, as we mourn the loss of various great and influential Christian leaders of the last generation, is God's love, his steadfast love and power, his commitment to his promises, still with us today, this day, this generation, um, I remember there's, there's a, a brilliant Australian evangelist I would listened to give some amazing talks and it was great. And he was getting older and I remember at a coffee time once he came up to me and said, of course it's, it's over to you now. <laughs> I was quite young at the time. I was like, really? But now he's dead. So actually it is. And the same will be true when I'm dead. It's over to us. Is God's steadfast love stronger than the grave? Does it go on near, far, wherever you are? Okay, that's enough intro. Let's get into our passage. We've got three points to work our way through the story. Just to, just to reassure you, we're going we're to focus mostly on the start of the passage, so we'll go quite slowly through verses 1 to 14. Don't panic. The last point will be quick. We'll, we'll put foot on the accelerator then. Um, but first point is this. Abraham, in verses 1 to 9, he's trusting God's priorities, even if it seems like mission impossible. Trusting God's priorities, even if it seems like mission impossible. Why do I say Abraham's trusting God's priorities? Well, if you look in verse uh, 1 and 2, he's coming to the end of his life. He knows that. And he's absolutely determined before he dies to see Isaac married. Now, I need to point out, and this is important, this is not saying that every Christian parent or every Christian grandparent should have this priority, kind of my top priority before I die is see my children married. If I can get them married, that's a success. If, 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 if they don't get married, that's second best. That's not the application. The most important thing for us is to be pre- in, uh, praying for and encouraging our children to trust in Jesus. And remember, 1 Corinthians 7 says there are advantages to being single when you're serving Jesus. Um, there are pros and cons to marriage. We mustn't think, whether for ourselves or for others, that, that the only godly path through life as a Christian is the pursuit of marriage. And we can sometimes give that impression, which is why I'm mentioning that. But here's the thing. For Abraham, specifically, and for Isaac, that was the only godly path. Why do I say that? Well, because God had promised to Abraham he'd have a massive family, loads of descendants, and he promised it would come through Isaac. Like, Isaac has to get married and have children. That's part of the plan, as many stars in the sky in fact, he said we, we, we are trusting that the serpent crusher, the kind of savior of the world is gonna come through Isaac and his descendants. Um, so I know romantic comedies often make it seem like the fate of the world is, is all hanging on whether Mr. Wright and M- Mrs. Wright get together. And really that's nonsense, that's not true. But in this case, it is true. that the actual fate of the world, the hope for humanity depends on Isaac finding a wife, the right wife. The stakes are high. And so verse 2, Abraham gets his most trusted employee and he says to him, look, swear to me you'll find a wife for Isaac. Swear by God you'll get a wife for Isaac. Um, Abraham's getting on, he's about to die. Isaac's beginning to get on, he's 40 by now. Look, I can't wait any longer. Uh, He really needs to be married. And so you would expect Abraham to say to the servant, look, whoever you can find, wherever you can find them, he needs to be married, okay? Just find someone. Except, actually, if you look at verse two, uh, verse 3, the words that actually come out of Abraham's mouth first off are about where not to find a wife for Isaac. Did you see that? Verse 3, uh, put your hand under my thigh. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Here we're starting to see Abraham's faith priorities. Uh, it's a faith priority that Isaac gets a wife that fits the plan and the promises but actually he's saying it can't be a wife from Canaan in fact swear to me you don't go down that route why is he saying that it's not about race it's not a race thing it's about worship it's an idolatry thing so the Canaanites around them worship different gods false gods idols And they live in in a way, their values are totally opposed to to God's ways. In fact, an offense to God. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. God himself has said to Abraham that these Canaanites are under a curse. They're, They're storing up judgment by the way they're behaving. That they will actually be destroyed in the future if they carry on like this. And so Abraham's effectively saying to his servant, look, Promise me you'll help Isaac marry a believer in the real God, or a real believer in the real God, not an idol-worshipping Canaanite. I guess Abraham may have in mind the Lot scenario. Do you remember Lot? He, he got so involved with Sodom, that town, he started behaving like them, and it destroyed his family, actually, his wife and then his daughters. Abraham may actually be thinking about the generation after Isaac, Isaac's uh, trusting God, but what about the grandchildren? And so he says, I want you to take a road trip to my relatives. Go and find a wife there. They know about the real God. They trust him. Now, application-wise, there may just be a question beginning to bubble in our minds of, oh, hang on, hang on. Are you going to say today that Christians shouldn't marry people who aren't Christians? That Christians should only marry believers? The short answer is I am going to draw out that implication in a few minutes' time. But I do want us to hold fire before we talk about that, because that isn't the biggest thing of this chapter. Um, the biggest thing uh, is, is this idea that these faith priorities are creating a kind of mission impossible for the servant. So what Abraham's asking him to do here is a really big task. You get that from the fact he, he, he has to get the guy to swear, kind of by God that he'll do this and not take the, the easy option. Uh, and the journey he's asking him to make is 520 miles. Um, Someone texted me this week to tell me that uh, apparently 520 miles is the distance if you drove from Chalmers to Port Isaac in Cornwall. Um, I haven't actually checked that, Um, and the guy was called Isaac who texted, so it may, I assume it is, Um, uh, but the servant didn't have a car. For him, it's 21 days journey to go and find this eligible potential marriage partner. You know, when the pretenders were singing, they would walk 500 miles just to turn up at your door. I assume they didn't have Genesis 24. I've uh, I've never read about the background to that story. I assume Genesis 24 wasn't their inspiration, but that is what we're talking about. No hyperbole, a massive ask. I mean, it's already a needle in the haystack uh, to find a marriageable lady amongst my relatives. But by the way, the haystack is 500 miles away. Actually, the the servant, and he's a a brilliant guy, this servant. He's really wise, clear-sighted, trusting God. He doesn't even think the distance is the biggest problem with Abraham's plan. Just look at him, verse 5. He pipes up. uh, He trusts God, but his faith is being stretched here. Verse 5, the servant says, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, which is actually quite a good point, isn't it? It's not just that I have to walk 500 miles, but you're saying she has to walk 500 more just to be the one who turns up at Isaac's door. And faced with that challenge, he then comes up with a practical solution. Listen to this, verse 5, carry on. Must I then take your son back to the land from which he came? Okay, if that happens, say it happens, we'll get Isaac to come. And then he can convince her to come back. At least she, she can meet him. That's, that gives more of a chance, you would have thought. Or he can get, just stay there. They can be together. We can have children. There'll be children. Kind of the plan will go ahead. And Abraham says, no, no, we're not going to do that. Verse six, Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I'll give you this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman's not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. Abraham's really determined, isn't he? He's got, he's got these faith priorities. Yes, I want Isaac married, that's part of the plan, but, but no, we're not getting a wife from Canaan, and no, he's not going to leave the land. This land where God's promises are centered. I don't want Isaac being sucked into a different world with different priorities and and kind of losing his grip on this place, this promised future, permanent home. Which, by the way, is what our priorities should be for those of us who are parents or grandparents. Actually, whether they end up married or single, whether their marks are high or low, whether they're tertiary educated, professionally employed and well-off or not, whether they speak another language, play two instruments and three sports, it's neither here nor there. What mattered to Abraham was will Isaac have a grip on God's promises, his promised home? Will his kids know about that? Will, will his grandkids And so for us, will we do everything in our power, whether we're parents or just part of this church family, maybe on the children and youth teams, will we do everything in our power to help the children and young people of Chalmers? No, life is not about grab all you can and fit God round the sides. No, life is about grab God's promises with both hands and trust that he'll look after the rest. It might be tougher than we would like, harder than we'd design maybe as our plan for life. And Abraham's approach here is making it more difficult. I mean, the servant can see that. You want me to go all the way over there without your son and try and find a wife for him and expect her to come back, want to come back? Abraham says, yeah, I know. It sounds like Mission Impossible. It also sounded like Mission Impossible when my wife couldn't have children and we were both beyond the age of medically even conceiving of children. And then God did the mission impossible. And I learned I never should have gone down the Hagar route. Or Isaac says to himself, well, I know it seemed like mission impossible when I was walking Isaac up that mountain. And it seemed like he was definitely going to die and there was no way out. That seemed like mission impossible. And then God provided a substitute sacrifice. If I've learned one thing about God, says Abraham at the end of his life, it's that you can trust his promises however hard the mission looks. Near, far, wherever you are, his love goes on. His steadfast covenant love goes on. That's our first point, trusting God's priorities, even if it seems like mission impossible. Now at this point, I do want to pause and tackle that application question I raised. Does this chapter have something to say to us about what to prioritize if we're considering starting a uh, a romantic relationship? Now, we do need to be careful here, and partly, I'm I'm really conscious this morning, I'm wading into very sensitive territory, personal territory, and I hope this is the start of conversations rather than the end of them. Please do ask questions. Um, I also want to say, the primary purpose of this chapter isn't to give dating advice. I said that at the start, it's more about God's love life than it is about ours, and we do need to be careful that we don't just take individual details of a story and draw a kind of direct line across to us. I've already said that about um, Abraham's priorities as a parent, it doesn't come directly straight to us. Um, likewise, I mean, even if you were taking advice about dating and courtship from here, I mean, the bit we're about to get onto, the direct line application is, if you really want to find a spouse, load up 10 camels. like go for the squadron of camels with loads of gifts approach and send someone else and she's sure to say yes. I think if you bring 10 animals to a first date, it will be the last date. So, not direct lines, not all the details, but all that said, I do think this passage flags up that it is wise as a Christian to only consider marriage to another believer, a real believer in the real God. Or, in other words, to put it the other way around, if you're a Christian, it's not a good idea to toy with dating or marrying someone who's not a Christian. As I say that, I'm conscious there are people in our church family who are already married and in that situation, Um, sometimes because someone became a Christian after getting married, and sometimes for other reasons. And it's really important to say, I'm not actually talking to you with this. Um, The Bible's super, super clear that God wants marriages to continue. They're permanent unions. And so uh, we want, as a church family, to support every marriage, whether it's two Christians or one Christian or, or two people who aren't Christians at the moment, who want to support marriages. To be honest, if you're in that situation of one spouse is a Christian, you probably already know, and this is true because I've spoken to a number of folk about this, you know some of the tension, some of the pain that happens when the, the human who's closest to you, on the biggest issues of life, you disagree. How painful that can be. And we want to support and and, and bless you in your marriage and, and keep witnessing to why we think Jesus is so wonderful. But for those of us for whom marriage decisions are still ahead, I want to ask whether we're going to live with the kind of priorities that Abraham has here. I wonder if clinging close to Christ, as close as we can, is top of our priority list, even if it makes marriage harder, harder to find. I'm saying that not just from these few verses in Genesis. I'm actually saying it because it's a a big theme through Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says uh, to a Christian, they're free to marry only in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, he warns the the church there, that uh, he warns Christians against being unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's a picture of kind of pulling in slightly different directions, well, very different directions. Um, And actually, it's not just here. It's not just in Corinthians, the New Testament. It's actually all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, So the Old Testament law warned Israel not to intermarry or sleep with the people of the nations, around them, the Canaanites particularly, because of this issue of it could lead to worshipping idols. And that wasn't just an empty warning, it happened time and time again. And so in the days of Moses, it was sleeping with Moabites that led to worshipping a false god, Baal, at Peor. In the days of Joshua, he gave his final words to warn about this, ending up worshipping other gods and, and losing the land. In the days of Solomon, this was the issue for him that broke the kingdom as he um, had multiple wives with multiple gods and his heart went after them. Even after the exile, when he would have thought, well, now we know that's a, that can lead to terrible consequences, even after the exile, Ezra and Nehemiah, the same issue, Ezra pulling his hair out. Now that's a massive issue, I'm aware of that, it's personal issue, so please do ask questions about that, speak to people, speak to me, or ask afterwards, or put questions in the box at the back anonymously for the Q&A coming up in a few weeks' time. Um, a couple of common questions are things like, well, firstly, we're only dating, it's not, we're not talking about marriage yet, it's just dating, surely that's okay? To which my short answer would be, if you don't intend to marry someone, how is it loving to be dating them, to be raising hopes? To which sometimes the next question comes, well, they might become a Christian. They haven't said a definite no to Jesus. To which I'd say, that's brilliant. Why not put things on pause to give them a chance to think about Jesus? To give them some space, some head space, heart space to think about Jesus first. That's actually the most loving thing to do for that person. Given that that's the, the issue that matters most for them and for the relationship. Rather than put, having the pressure on at the moment. Okay, much more we could say, and I'm conscious that that is um, sensitive territory, so please do talk to others. That's the start of the conversation, not the end of it. But right now, we do need to get back to the bigger point, because though I think that's a real implication of this, of this um, uh, start of this chapter, it's not the biggest thing going on in the chapter. So let's get on to point two, and verses 10 to 14, which get us right to the heart of what's going on. Verses 10 to 14. Now, this is a really significant prayer. Um, the servant, by this point, he set off, and he's arrived. That was quick. Uh, And uh, he's now got the camels at a watering hole, a well. uh, And here's his prayer, verse 12. He said, "'O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink.'" And who shall say back, drink, and I will water your camels? Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. Now this prayer is important. I want us to notice a few things. Uh, Firstly, just what's the servant asking God to do? Well, clearly he's asking for success on this impossible mission of finding a bride for Isaac. So verse 12, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me success today. Uh, secondly he's got a plan of how he's going to work out who's the right person which does seem strange to our our ears the kind of 10 camel drink plan uh it's really a hospitality test so what he's saying is uh, i'm on the lookout for someone who's not just willing to give a drink to a stranger but willing to go the extra mile and say well not just you but what about all your camels That's the point. It's a hospitality test. And we've seen through Genesis that a mark of Abraham's family, the family of faith, is hospitality. Abraham had it. Even Lot had it. And uh, it flows from knowing God, the generous, hospitable God. Okay, so he's really kind of on the lookout for a believer in God. And he he thinks this way is going to be the way to find it. Um, But there's a third thing in the prayer, and actually it's the most important thing in the prayer. Just look at verse 12 again. he doesn't just ask, please grant me success today. He also asks God to show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Which, when you think about it, is a bit odd. It's not show your steadfast love to me. It's not even show your steadfast love to Isaac, who we're looking for a wife for. No, it's show your steadfast love to Abraham. And we are supposed to notice that um, because if you look at the end of the prayer, um, verse 14, same thing. By this I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to your master. It's important, this. That steadfast love phrase is, is God's covenant love. It's his steadfast commitment to his promises to Abraham. And that is the entire basis of this guy's confidence. When he prays, asking for success for him, It's on the basis of God's love to Abraham. Does that make sense? Because of your promises to him, grant me success today. I'm on an impossible mission, Lord. (laughs) A needle in a haystack, 500 miles away. But will your love go on near, far, wherever you are? Your steadfast love to Abraham, grant me success. That's his prayer. And it's an important prayer because that should have been the prayer of Israel in the wilderness as they stood waiting to go into the promised land, 400 years after Abraham, thinking to themselves, well, I know you were with our forefathers. I know you were with Abraham, but will you grant us success? Will we have progress? For the sake of your steadfast love to him, grant us success today. And likewise in Edinburgh. Now, one of the things that struck me as we've gone through Genesis this year is how little we pray like this, or even think like this. The idea that we would pray for God's help today on the basis of his promises to Abraham. Can you imagine praying that? As we think about the the re-evangelization of this nation, Scotland, the thought and dream of having a gospel church that's witnessing in every community again in this land, or the thought of sending gospel workers out, like we'll see at that, that mission conference, across the nations, That can feel like mission impossible to us. I mean, even speaking to a friend or a colleague and inviting them to Hope Explore can sometimes feel like mission impossible, can't it? And we don't even have to walk 500 miles. And yet this is the kind of prayer we should pray to give us confidence. Lord, you promised Abraham that you would build this massive family. You would include people from every tribe and tongue. And so for the sake of your commitment to that promise, Grant us success today. I mean, we're not one of the big cheeses, are we, in the Bible? We're, we're not one of the big heroes. Nor's the servant, actually. We don't even know his name, not told. It's just a servant. And yet, on the basis of God's promise to Abraham, he prays that God would be with him, bring success to his mission. That's the key prayer show your steadfast love to Abraham. <laughs> As you grant us success, progress. Okay, let's get on to point three. Um, time is marching on. And, and remember my, my reassurance. Yes, we've only covered 14 verses. Yes, there's loads more, but we are going to go much, much more quickly for verse uh, for point three, because we've got the big things on board. Abraham's got faith priorities, even if it leads to mission impossible, seemingly. But both the servant and Abraham trust God is more than able to bring about his promises We can keep appealing to his steadfast love. doesn't matter if you're in a different country like the servant was or a different time. It's the next generation. God's love will go on. Okay, point three. Um, Let's get to uh, point three and and pick up. We'll we'll head back to the well, verse 15, and pick up um, what happens next. And it is striking. He's barely finished praying that prayer. Literally, the, the word Abraham has barely got out of his mouth. And then Rebecca turns up. Um, and immediately we're learning things about her that, that show all those obstacles that make it seem like Mission Impossible start tumbling. So track with me. Verse 15, she's a relative. Uh, she's from the right family. She's a cousin once removed. She's from a family that does know God. Um, just as Abraham had hoped, he'd found this needle in the haystack. Um, and, it, and it wasn't actually hard to find, was it? Like it wasn't SAS tracking skills. He just went to the local well, the local watering hole, and there she is. But what about if she's spoken for? What about if she's uh, not eligible to be married? Well, verse 16, Rebecca is unmarried, single. And so the servant gets on to the 10 camel hospitality test. And here we need to remember the plan because it's really really specific. What he's going to say is, uh, I need a drink, can I have a drink? And what she's supposed to say is, drink and I will water your camels. Okay, That's what we're listening for. Verse 17, he gets from line right. Verse seventeen: The servant ran to meet her and said, "Please give me a little water to drink from your jar." She said, "Drink." So far, so good. "Drink, my lord." What about the camels? It's like fifty percent right. Oh, the tension's building. And then uh, after the camels, thankf- uh, after the drink, thankfully, verse nineteen, to everyone's relief, when she'd finished giving a drink, she said, "I'll draw water for your camels also until they finish drinking." And then she empties her jar. Uh, That She draws water for all his camels, and he stands there kind of wondering how hospitable, how generous will she be? Uh, And then it's clear um, that actually God has found uh, just the right person, a real believer, as it turns out. So let's see how things are progressing on those obstacles. The impossible mission from Abraham involved this, find a relative, Tick, who's available to be married, Tick, and is a believer, Tick, actually, her hospitality flows out of that And we'll see that as the chapter goes on. It was the needle in a 500-mile-away haystack, and it's been found. The very first person he met after the prayer. Now, again, I need to reiterate, this is not supposed to be a universal principle. This is not saying that if you pray that kind of prayer, looking for a marriage partner, and then open your eyes, the first person you see is (laughs) kind of... I mean, that would cause even more chaos than bringing camels to your first date. No, the the lesson we're supposed to get is verse 26. Just look with me, verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord's led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Praise the Lord, he says, because his love does go on beyond Abraham. This is for Isaac's benefit, the next generation. Five hundred years miles away, near far, wherever you are, his love will go on now at that point we 're going to skip through a lot of the detail and um, we 're about to meet Laban for the for the first time, um, who 's only got eyes for the money, but we 'll see that as we go on in Genesis. Uh, then you get the servant retelling the story um, from verse uh, Oh, I've lost my page. And um, from verse 20, 34 onwards, and he, he really does retell it. It's blow for blow. Every single event that's happened, every word, etc. I think to, to, to ram home the point we're supposed to draw, that God's steadfast love is at work here. Um, but let's jump on to verse 50. And here we see the last two challenges. Do you remember the last two challenges. Well, will her family let her go? And most importantly, because this is not some forced marriage, this is voluntary union, most importantly, will she want to come? That was what the servant had always been worried about. What if she says no? Well, let's have a look. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard her words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Even Laban and Bethuel can see the point. When you look at the facts and it's just so clear, the Lord is arranging this. His love goes on. His love to Abraham goes on. Now they try a bit of delaying tactics uh, the next morning. Let's stay around for a bit, maybe at least 10 days. Uh, Laban is a real delayer. But no, verse 56, the servants determined this is a priority mission. Verse 56, he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. At which point there is really only one question left. The original question the servant had, will she say yes? What will Rebecca think? Verse 57, let's call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And just like that, it's all on. God has smoothed the way, his love story his covenant commitment, his faithful love story has swept up all of these people into it. And actually, amazingly, the blessing they announce on Rebecca as she heads out the door, picks up the exact wording of the blessing given to Abraham by the angel just after the near sacrifice of Isaac. She's now been kind of brought into this extraordinary love story, God's plan to bless the world um, through the offspring of this family. We're pretty much done. I've just got a moment to apply. Just before we do, there is one more amazing providence. Um, so, so the servants walked 500 miles uh, to find her, and then she's walked 500 more to come back. And it turns out, 21 days later, the first field they come to, who's the guy having a quiet time in the field at that time of the evening? Isaac. is Isaac. Of course it is. They bump into each other. Another extraordinary um, coincidence or God incidence, uh, providence. Uh, And they meet a married fall in love. That is the extraordinary record of how Isaac got a wife. But more importantly, and it is far more important, it is the record of how when Abraham leaned on God's promises, despite the complexity that that brought into his life, and when the servant leaned on God's promises to Abraham, despite the, the difficulty that brought into his mission, well, God's steadfast love, proved itself he proved that his love goes on near far wherever you are his love his commitment to Abraham and his promises goes on as we close why might we need to know that well have you ever had that slight wobble when you hear about some great Christian leader or or hero of the faith passing away or getting seriously ill getting cancer or something I was thinking about this this week, actually, some of the most influential preachers and evangelical leaders that have had an influence on me as I've grown up, and um, well, I'll give you the list. Mark Ashton, Jim Packer, John Stott, Tim Keller, Mike Ovey, John Piper, Don Carson, and there are a number more, but that entire list is either dead or nearing the end, ill health. All of them, all of those kind of theological heavyweights, all of those great... Leaders, and I'm sure you'd have your equivalents. Once they're gone, what does the future of the church look like in our generation? Well, in the face of death, Sarah's, Abraham's, God's love goes on through this servant, this unnamed servant. This term, we've got a lot actually of outreach going on. Fox is beginning at Sorted, giving a a chance for young people to hear about Jesus. Hope Explored is continuing, uh, giving a chance for adults to hear more about Jesus and ask questions. The International's Bible Study carries on. Uh, The the big weekend is about to happen next Friday for for primary school children. Uh, Chatterbox goes on every week. Connections, and for people who are available during the day on Thursday afternoons, fortnightly is going on. There's that mission conference. There's going to be a holiday club in Easter. And we can feel like, oh, is it even going to make a dent? Like, we're pretty weak Seems like mission impossible, doesn't it? For a primary school child or, or for, for someone from a Muslim background or for a stressed young mum or, or for a retired person who's lived their whole life ignoring Jesus or for a student in Edinburgh who's got a million other things they could be doing with their life. Seems, seems like mission impossible. that Anyone like that would come to join the family and trust Jesus. The reality is we should pray the servant's prayer. God has promised that this family, Abraham's family, God's people, church family, is going to grow across the world massively, as many as the stars of the sky. And so we should pray, Lord, for the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of your promises to Abraham, grant us progress today, success today in our mission, the mission of going to all nations and sharing the good news of Jesus. Prosper us in our generation because of your love. That, I think, is the big take home of Genesis 24. Let's pray.